Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 39, Genesis chapters 46 and 47. Okay, we are uh, moving right along here. We're about to get into chapter 46 of Genesis tonight. And with this chapter, chapter 46, the era of the patriarchs truly closes. Abraham and Isaac are dead. And Jacob, who's a very old man now, is in the midst of moving the Israelites out of Canaan and into Egypt and into the authority of Joseph and Judah. And pretty soon, Jacob is going to go to be with God. Now, after moving the family, Israel, to Egypt, Jacob only has but one duty left, to pronounce the all-important blessings upon his sons. The blessings that will officially transfer wealth and power and authority and responsibility and the covenant on to his sons. We will see the prophetic saga of these blessings beginning in chapter 48. All right, and we'll discuss that whole matter in great depth when we get there. Now, it's also interesting to note the use of the word Israelites in this chapter because the clan of Israel has now grown sufficiently to border on warranting nation status at this point. So let's read Genesis chapter 46 together. Genesis chapter 46. Israel took everything he owned with him on his journey. He arrived at Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Yitzhak. And in a vision at night, God called to Israel, Yaakov, Yaakov. And he answered, Here I am. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Don't be afraid to go down to Egypt. It is there that I will make you into a great nation. Not only will I go down with you to Egypt, but I will also bring you back here again after Joseph has closed your eyes. So Jacob left Beersheba, and the sons of Israel brought Yaakov their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry them. They took their cattle and their possessions, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and arrived in Egypt. Yaakov and all his descendants with him, his sons, grandsons, daughters, granddaughters, and all his descendants he brought with him into Egypt. These are the names of Israel's children who came into Egypt, Yaakov and his sons. Reuben, Yaakov's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanoch, Palu, Hetzron, and Carmi, the sons of Shimon, Yemuel, Yamin, Ochad, Yahin, Zokar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman, the sons of Levi, Gershon, Chat, and Merari, the sons of Yehuda, Er, Onan, Shelah, Peretz, and Zerah, 
But Er and Onan died in the land of Canaan. The sons of Perez were Hetzron and Hamul. The sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Yov, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elon, and Yachlael. These were the children of Leah, whom she born to Yaakov and Padan Aram, with his daughter Dinah. In sum, his sons and daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Haji, Shuni, Esbon, Eri, Erodi, and Arieli. The children of Asher, Yimna, Yishva, Yishvi, Briah, and their sister Sarah. The sons of Briah were Hever and Malchiel. These were the children of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah his daughter. She bore to Yaakov sixteen people. The sons of Yaakov, uh, sons of Rachel, Yaakov's wife, Joseph and Benjamin. To Yosef in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Osnat, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore to him. The sons of Benjamin: Bela, Becher, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Echi, Rosh. Mupim, Hupim, and Ard. These were the children of Rachel who were born to uh, Yaakov in some 14 people. The sons of Dan, Hushim. The sons of Naphtali, Yakzeel, Guni, uh, Yetzer, and Shilim. These were the sons of Bilah whom Laban gave to Rachel his daughter. She bore them to Yaakov in some seven people. All the people belonging to Jacob coming into Egypt, his direct descendants, not counting Jacob's sons' wives, totaled 66. The sons of Joseph, born to him in Egypt, were two in number. Thus, all the people in Jacob's family who entered Egypt numbered 70. Now Jacob sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph, so that the latter might guide him on the road to Goshen. Thus they arrived in the land of Goshen, and Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet Israel, his father. He presented himself to him. He embraced him, and he wept on his neck for a long time. Then Israel said to Joseph, "Now I can die because I've seen your face and seen that you are still alive." And Joseph said to his brothers and his Father's family. I'm going up to tell Pharaoh. I'll say to him, "My brothers and my father's family, who were in the land of Canaan, have come to me. The men are shepherds and keepers of livestock. They have brought their flocks, their herds, and all their possessions. Now, when Pharaoh summons you and asks, 'What is your occupation?' Tell him, 'Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth until now, both we and our ancestors.'" This will ensure that you will live in the land of Goshen, for any shepherd is abhorrent to the Egyptians. Well, let's examine for a moment what Jacob's mindset must have been about their leaving Canaan and going down to Egypt to join this most beloved son, Joseph. Now, of course. He was grateful beyond measure that his long-lost son was alive. After all these years, thinking him dead, and soon he'd be back together with him, and he was now certain that his clan, the twelve tribes of Israel, would survive the famine 
that had gripped that part of the world and all of this due to Joseph's ability to care for them. But Jacob wondered what would be the more long-term result of their migration to Egypt. Was this about to be the fulfillment of the prophecy about the Hebrews' fate given in a dream to his grandfather Abraham so many years earlier? Okay. Jacob would have known all about this prophecy and he would have heard it from his grandfather's own mouth and again from his father Isaac all right, and it disturbed him and it made him very anxious and afraid. So let's back up a second and remember those prophetic words of God to Abraham in Genesis 15 verses 12 through 16. I'll just read it for you. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that's not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Now Jacob well knew that if his taking his family to Egypt to survive the famine was the time and fulfillment of what God had spoken of to Abraham, and what else could it have been? Okay, that he would die down in Egypt. All right, and that Jacob was in essence removing his family from the promised land for the purpose of their becoming enslaved in Egypt. All right, for an extended period of time. He knew that four centuries would pass before his family would once again be free and move back to the land promised by God to the Hebrews. Now by the way, it's this same passage in Genesis 15 that makes many a Bible scholar convinced that a biblical generation is a hundred years. All right? Because the scripture says here that the Israelites are going to be in Egypt for 400 years and then it also says, speaks of that same period of time as being four generations. Right? So, after the Israelites packed up and began their journey towards Egypt, probably beginning from Hebron. Okay? They stopped at Beersheba and there Jacob had a vision. Right? Beersheba, right in this area here, towards the southern end of the land of Canaan, just as you're approaching the Sinai Peninsula. And so Jacob has this vision and in this vision, God addresses a fear. All right? And, and, and this dreaded anticipation of Jacob of what might lay ahead for his family. And in verse 3, God tells Jacob not to be afraid to take his family down into Egypt because it is there that God has prepared a place for the Israelites to grow from a rather smallish group of what it says is 70 individuals. We'll talk about that in a minute. Into a great nation 
All right? And Jacob had no clue just how great a nation this was going to become in time. Okay? And God confirms to Jacob that indeed he will breathe his last there, but that his remains will not forever rest in Egyptian sand. Okay? God will see to it that he's brought back to the land of his ancestors. Now in verse 1, we're told that Jacob offered sacrifices at Beersheba in preparation for this momentous migration. Now actually, in Hebrew, it says what Jacob offered was Zebahim. Okay, Zeba, or its, its plural, Zebahim, is a very specific kind of sacrifice. One of several that we're going to learn all about all right, when we get to the book of Leviticus. Now, while the Zeva, as are at least a portion of all the various sacrificial offerings, laid on the fire of the great altar, this Zeva is not the burnt offering. Okay. A term, really, that's only a general one, burnt offering. Okay, for all the various kinds of sacrifices that are to be burnt up. Now, since sacrifices are never made on the, on the ground in a common fire, it means Jacob would have used an altar. All right. His father, Isaac, had built and used an altar in Beersheba many years earlier. And very probably, this was the same one. In fact, uh, even though the verses don't explicitly say that it was Isaac's altar that Jacob used, that it says that Jacob sacrificed to the God of his father Isaac all but assures it. Because altars were always built and dedicated to specific gods. And when a, therefore when an altar was being referred to, it was referred to by the location it was in, who built it, and the God that it was to serve. So we can be pretty sure that Isaac had built this particular altar. Now in verse 4, we have a reminder of the standard Middle Eastern cultural mindset of that era. That gods were territorial. Okay. Yep, it was an unquestioned belief that gods observed national borders. And for whatever reason, Jacob and his family still generally thought the same way all the other world cultures did. And Jehovah apparently hadn't tried very hard all right, yet to enlighten him and explain the reality of that error. So naturally, one of Jacob's fears was that when he crossed the boundary of Canaan, and entered Egypt, he would leave behind the influence and protection of his own God, Jehovah, and now be subject to the gods of Israel. I rather the gods of Egypt, pardon me, gods of Egypt. Okay. So God says to answer this fear, I myself will go down with you into Egypt, and I myself will bring you back. You see that? Okay. In other words, Jacob's God, in his mind, would take the unusual step of crossing 
territorial boundaries in accompanying Israel on his migration. Now, this was not the usual operating method for a god. It, but it must have been a pretty welcome surprise for Jacob, even if he just didn't even understand how Yehovah could just change all the god etiquette you know, that had been established over the centuries. And as we continue in Torah, and then eventually leave it and get into the book of Joshua, we're going to encounter all sorts of interesting comments like this one about God going with Jacob that are frankly just kind of typically brushed aside as but ancient figures of speech. Trust me, these are not ancient figures of speech, but rather they're conversations and oracles about matters that were very real to the minds of these ancient Hebrews. Right, now verse 5 tells us that a sufficient number of wagons had been sent for all Israel to bring their possessions with them. Okay? But of course, the most important possession of Israel was the people. And what is being communicated here is that all of Israel's family moved to Egypt. None stayed behind. Now allow me to let you in on a little secret. Verses 8 through 25 possibly even including verses 26 and 27, were either added to this text at a later date or they were significantly modified from the original at a later time. Okay, How do we know this? Well, to start with, the numbers don't add up All right, for the time setting that we're in. And we find that when the genealogy, this the same genealogy, is repeated in Numbers 26 and then later on yet in First Chronicles, there are substantial variances. Plus, there are matters of common sense. Okay. Joseph, we know, was in his early 30s at this time. Okay. So Benjamin would have been in his 20s. Very young man. Okay. Yet we get a listing of 10 sons of Benjamin. And the Numbers 5 listing for the same genealogy is five sons and two grandsons. Okay, Since the clearly stated time frame for this chapter is the migration of Israel to Egypt during the time of the famine, right, it is utterly impossible for Benjamin to have sired so many children, let alone grandchildren coming from his children at such a tender age. Now, if this unnerves you a little bit, don't let it. Okay. Genealogies are inserted into the text for all kinds of reasons in the Bible. Okay. And they've been amended for all kinds of good reasons. Okay. Not the least of which is that after a significant time has passed, often a larger and clearer picture of the family tree was available and so that additional information was added. Okay. Sometimes genealogies were modified because a clan had completely died out all right, and it was necessary to insert their name just to be sure they wouldn't be forgotten. Okay. In the case of Genesis 46, it is also possible and I think probable that the number 70 is symbolic rather than an exact census. For one reason, 70 is symbolic of the totality of a cycle in the Bible. 
It also represents a universality of an event that, that's so, of something that has been or, uh, divinely ordained. Now, it is very likely that there were well more than 70 individuals that went to Egypt because genealogies and censuses generally only count the males of the population. The 66 males mentioned in the genealogy of Genesis 46 are an example of this tradition. Okay. There would have been at least as many females born and probably a few more females than males, which is the normal pattern of birth rate. So it is likely that the full and complete number that went down to Egypt was closer to 150. But as, we, as, as would have any small nation of that size, they would have had some amount of foreign slaves as well. And in fact, we know from the scriptures Right, that we've studied in here that describe of this incident of the slaughter of the residents of Shechem some years earlier I recall this was that revenge by the Israelites for the rape of, of, of Jacob's daughter Dinah right, by the king of Shechem's son and that it says that Israel took many women and children as slaves and concubines Right. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if the number of Israelites that went down to Egypt was somewhere around 200. could have been even a little bit more. Now, one more thing about this genealogy, and we'll continue. All genealogical listings in the Bible had a method to their madness. Okay. The names were grouped in whatever way they were for a specific reason, there was a point it was trying to get across. It was never at random. Okay? And we see that here in Genesis 46 because the first members of Israel listed are Leah, who was Jacob's first wife, and her children. Then Leah's servant girl, Zilpah, and her children. Next, Jacob's second wife, Rachel along with her children and then what follows is Rachel's servant girl Bela and Bela's children and of course we get further proof of the later redaction of the genealogy when it, in, it starts to talk about Joseph's Egyptian born children and and so on alright now very probably verse 28 of Genesis 46 belongs right after verse 7 in the original. And in verse 28, we're told something that we need to tuck away in our memories. Judah was sent ahead of Jacob to scout out the way. Okay. This was a job for the firstborn. But of course, we see no mention of Reuben, Jacob's firstborn son here. Okay. Apparently, by now, Judah had assumed that role bypassing even the two more brothers that normally by tradition were ahead of him, Simeon and Levi. Well, now we see that Jacob and his family arrives for this long-awaited reunion. And Joseph went immediately to the land of Goshen. This is towards the, the upper end of Egypt here, the, the, the northern, northern end. And this was going to be the place that was going to be now their home. And it tells us of this 
touching scene whereby Joseph, the ruler of the great land of Egypt, humbles himself before his aged father and then weeps while embracing him, it says, for a long time. Now, Joseph then leaves to tell Pharaoh of his family's arrival, and this was so that the Pharaoh is shown proper respect and so that he may honor and welcome Israel in whatever way he chooses. Now, note a little terminology used here that can be confusing. It says in verse 31 that Joseph went up to tell Pharaoh. Up, in other words, direction. Well, to us, and really to the rest of the rest of the world, up is north. All right? But Joseph most certainly did not go north from the land of Goshen or to, uh, to Pharaoh. Pharaoh was residing in Memphis, which was south. Okay, the key here that Egypt was a divided land, all right, and it consisted primarily of two large territories. Sometimes you'll hear it spoken of of Middle Egypt, but primarily you'll hear it of Lower Egypt, which is to the upper part, and Upper Egypt, which is to the lower part. All right, and it's completely reversed from our traditional way of thinking. Um, the reason for this being that the flow of the Nile River goes from here, this direction. So for them, this is up, this is down, this is upper, this is lower. Right. In any case, as is common for the heads of state like Pharaoh, he has been prepared in advance right, for the greetings and blessings that he will give to his honored guests, Israel. But in proper protocol, it is necessary for the Pharaoh himself to pronounce his rulings face to face with the representatives of Israel. So Joseph also prepares some of his brothers as to exactly what the procedure is going to be and then tells them what they're to say so they can accommodate Pharaoh's already decided plan for Israel. You know, he had this kind of Egyptian Hebrew kabuki dance going on here. Right? And in the end, the idea is to make it 100% official that the land of Goshen is going to be set aside for Israel. Now let's move on to chapter 47. Chapter 47. Then Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and brothers have come from the land of Canaan with their flocks, livestock, all their possessions. Right now they're in the land of Goshen. He took five of his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they answered Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, both we and our ancestors. And added, We have come to live in the land, because in the land of Canaan there is no place to pasture your servants' flocks. The famine is so severe there. Therefore, please let your servants live in the land of Goshen. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and brothers have come to you and the land of Egypt lies before you. Have your father and brothers live on the best property in the country. Let them live in the land of Goshen. Moreover, if you know that some of them are particularly competent, put them in charge of my livestock. Joseph then brought in Jacob his father and presented him to Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh asked Jacob, How old are you? And Jacob 
replied, The time of my stay on earth has been 130 years. They have been few and difficult, fewer than my ancestors lived. Then Jacob blessed Pharaoh and left his presence. Joseph found a place for his father and brothers and gave them property in the land of Egypt, in the best region of the country, in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had ordered. Joseph provided food for his father, his brothers, and all his father's household, taking full care of even the youngest. There was no food anywhere, for the famine was very severe, so that both Egypt and Canaan grew weak from hunger. Joseph collected all the money there was in Egypt and Canaan in exchange for the grain they bought and put the money in Pharaoh's treasury. When all the money in Egypt had been spent, and likewise in Canaan, all the Egyptians approached Joseph and said, Give us something to eat even though we have no money. Why should we die before your eyes? And Joseph replied, Give me your livestock. If you don't have money, I'll give you food in exchange for your livestock. So they brought Joseph their livestock. And Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses and flocks, cattle and donkeys. All that year he provided them with food in exchange for all of their livestock. Well, when that year was over, they approached Joseph again and said to him, We won't hide from my Lord that all our money is spent and the herds of livestock belong to my Lord. We have nothing left as my Lord can see, but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our, our land for food, and we and our land will be enslaved to Pharaoh, but also give us seed to plant so that we can stay alive and not die, and so that the land won't become barren. So Joseph acquired all the land in Egypt for Pharaoh, as one by one the Egyptians sold their fields, because the famine weighed on them so severely. Thus the land became the property of Pharaoh. As for the people, he reduced them to serfdom, city by city, from one end of Egypt's territory to the other. Only the priest's land did he not acquire, because the priests were entitled to provisions from Pharaoh, and they ate from what Pharaoh provided them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, as of today, I have acquired you and your land for Pharaoh. Here is seed for you to sow the land. When harvest time comes, you're to give 20% to Pharaoh. 80% will be yours to keep for seed to plant in the fields as well as for your food and for that of your households and your little ones. They replied, you have saved our lives. So if it pleases my Lord, we will be Pharaoh's slaves. Joseph made it a law for the country of Egypt valid to this day that Pharaoh should have 20%. Only the property belonging to the priests did not become Pharaoh's. Israel lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. Uh, they acquired possessions in it and were productive and their numbers multiplied greatly. Yaakov lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. Thus Jacob lived to be 147 years old. The time came when Israel was approaching death. So he called for his son Joseph and said to him, If you truly love me, please put your hand under my thigh and pledge that out of consideration for me, you will not bury me in Egypt. Rather, when I sleep with my fathers, you are to carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. He replied, I will do as you have said. 
He said, swear it to me. And he swore it to him. Then Israel bowed down at the head of his bed. Well, this ceremony with the Pharaoh begins. And Joseph begins this pre-planned agenda by formally announcing to the Pharaoh the arrival of his family. And of course, right on cue, right, Pharaoh asks their occupation. And doing their part, the five brothers chosen to represent the whole family respond that they're shepherds and they've come to request the Pharaoh that he might let them come to Egypt because the famine's so severe and they can't survive there any longer. Now it's interesting in verse 4 that the term used to describe the stay that the Hebrew brothers ask Pharaoh for is to sojourn. Okay, That is, this is a term that means temporary. To be guests, not citizens. It's clear that while Jacob knows they're going to be in Egypt a long time, either he's not revealed this to his sons, the ones that are currently speaking with Pharaoh, or more likely, they choose not to believe such a pessimistic assessment. So in a magnanimous gesture of friendship befitting of royalty, Pharaoh offers the Israelites the land of Goshen. Right? And further befitting of royalty, Pharaoh does not respond to these lowly Hebrew shepherds. He gives his responses to Joseph. Right? And Joseph then replies to the brothers. Well, next, Jacob is presented to Pharaoh. Now, this is a totally separate meeting from the ones from the one the brothers just concluded with Pharaoh. And it says that Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Okay? Now, that might seem a little odd because it kind of reverses their stations in life. Right? It, it would seem that the humble and simple shepherd like Jacob, a refugee, would have no business or place blessing such a great man as Pharaoh. But what this amounted to was the respect that existed in that day for the aged. And Jacob was probably the most aged man in all Egypt at that moment. Um, and it, it would appear just kind of from the language of this that Pharaoh had never met a man that old. I mean, Egyptian records simply don't show Egyptians living as long as the Hebrews. In fact, Jacob's elderliness so intrigued Pharaoh that he just blurted out to him, Hey, how old are you? He must have looked old. You know? And Jacob responds he's 130 years, and most of those haven't been particularly pleasant. Right? But then he goes on to tell Pharaoh, and he says, You know what? 130 years old ain't nothing. All right? He says, My ancestors lived a lot longer than me. Well, Jacob and his clan now settle into the land of Goshen, and they're going to remain there for four centuries. Now we're told that the famine was continuing, and it was now even more severe than before. And the Egyptian people, along with foreigners more and more came to depend on the grain that had been stockpiled by Joseph because the yield of the land now, as this was moving along, was becoming less and less. And we also see how it came to be that Pharaoh not only gained ownership 
of all the land of Egypt, but also extended Egypt's influence into Canaan and into the more of the Middle East. Because as the people's food ran out, then their money was exhausted, then their livestock was sold, they next traded their land for food and eventually they sold themselves into the service of the Pharaoh. But it's also key to notice that to the folks giving up their money, land, and liberty, it was Joseph the Hebrew that they were dealing with. Okay. Now, of course, the land was kind of useless to Pharaoh without somebody to tend the flocks and the herds that he now owned, all of it, all right, and to till the soil. So who was going to do this? So Joseph entered the now dispossessed Egyptian people into a tenant-landlord relationship with Pharaoh as regards the land. That is, the people were allowed to remain on Pharaoh's land so long as they planted and then gave a substantial portion of the increase of the land to Pharaoh as rent. This arrangement, which is commonly called serfdom, okay, was closer to enslavement than a business deal. Okay. Only the priests of Egypt were exempted from this arrangement as they were really wards of the state anyway. Okay, and It was Egypt's obligation to care for them. Now, although I mentioned last week, mentioned it last week, let's estimate for a moment what Joseph must have been about this time in the eyes of the people of Egypt and even up into Canaan. Okay, because it was Joseph's plan, Joseph's decrees, Joseph's implementations of his own plan that caused the people to become paupers and serfs. It was Joseph's face the people saw confiscating their land and their livestock. Joseph, while certainly saving their lives during that period of famine, was now their owner. He, as Pharaoh's representative, owned their land and he owned them. If you want to see the beginning of the hatred of the Egyptians towards the Israelites and that seminal moment that was the beginning of the steady path towards fulfillment of the prophecy to Abraham of his descendants' enslavement, this is it. Right here. Okay. The current Semite, remember, Semite Pharaoh, of course, could have cared less what the Egyptian people wanted. Okay. But years later, when the Egyptian people overthrew those hated foreign pharaohs, the Hyksos rulers of Egypt, and installed an Egyptian pharaoh, they were now free to exact retribution for a hundred years of built-up anger and envy towards these Hebrews led by Joseph who had taken their land and their freedom. And to make matters worse, we see in verse 27 that at the same time the Egyptian people were being forced to give up their land in exchange for food to survive, the Israelites were acquiring land in Goshen. And in the land that they, unlike the Egyptian populace, now owned, says they were prospering and their number grew dramatically. Things were going pretty good for the Hebrews up there. Well, now we see that Jacob would live 17 years in Egypt 
before he died at the age of 147. Jacob, the last patriarch, would be the only one to die on foreign soil. Okay? But before he died, when he knew his time was near, Jacob called Joseph to his side and made him promise not to leave Jacob buried in the sands of Egypt. Right? But that his remains um, would be returned to the promised land. And Jacob had no need to worry if this promise was going to be carried out because before he had arrived in Egypt, God assured Jacob that his wish would be granted. Now Jacob loved God and he trusted God. But just exactly how God operated, as far as Jacob was concerned, Jacob basically knew from the well-established and common beliefs and traditions of all the Middle Eastern cultures. So let me remind you of the issue for Jacob that made the location of his burial so critically important to him. This wasn't some idealistic matter. It wasn't about honor. Okay? This wasn't even about nationalism, right? like when a country makes every effort to bring their soldiers who died in battle on foreign soil to bring them home all right, to their native land. The issue for Jacob involved the all-important matter of ancestor worship. Okay? How was he to be buried and gathered to his kin if his kin, Abraham and Isaac, were in Canaan, but he was in Egypt. Okay? The spirits of the dead didn't travel, as far as they knew. Okay? How was his essence going to continue on after his death by means of his spirit being tended and honored by his sons, grandsons and great-grandsons, which was all part of of ancestor worship if his sons were in Canaan but his spirit was still stuck there in Egypt. Okay. If a spirit wasn't tended, it was believed, it would come to an end and that person's essence would evaporate for all time. So this was a big deal. And besides, it was the gods of each territory. Remember those territorial gods? All right, who had rule over their own kingdoms of the dead. All right. So for Jacob, he wanted to ensure that indeed he would be taken back to Canaan so he could live with his ancestors and his spirit would be properly looked after by his descendants. Okay. But Jacob had some further duties as head of the clan that he had to perform before he passed. He had to transfer the rights he possessed as leader and ruler of the family of Israel along with being the possessor of its wealth, over to the one who would carry on in his stead. Now, the idea here is the firstborn rights had to be transferred to whoever was going to be the next leader of Israel, and along with it, blessings and instructions, not only to the next leader of Israel, but to all twelve of his sons. And what Jacob does next, just hours and days before his death, is quite dramatic. Right? And it has the most serious, far-reaching, even eternal consequences for us. Okay? I cannot find the words to stress enough that for us 
to fill with meaning the remainder of Torah, as well as the whole of the Old Testament, we have to grasp the significance of the events about to unfold in the last days of Jacob's life. And after understanding all that, even the New Testament is going to take on a deeper and fuller meaning to us, as well the rapid unfolding of current events going on in Israel, even as I'm speaking to you. Now those blessings and instructions we're going to find in the next three chapters, which will bring Genesis to a close. And next week, we're going to start dealing with those blessings. Okay? That'll do it for tonight.